Warning, this episode contains brain food that will lead to improved emotional and social intelligence. Give us one hour and we'll help you change the way you think about happiness. Harvesting Happiness with Lisa Cypress-Kamen is fresh, optimistic, and purpose-driven media that promotes well-being from the inside out. Each week, Lisa spotlights diverse trendsetters and change agents who are the greatest contemporary thinkers and doers, devoting their lives to creating a better world in which to live. Your host, Lisa Cypress-Kamen, is a widely recognized applied positive psychology expert, author, documentary filmmaker, and lecturer specializing in optimal lifestyle management. Let's get to it. Here's Lisa. Good morning, good afternoon, and good evening, wherever you are. Thanks for joining us on today's show, where you will learn about management as a calling, yielding positive performance through positive leadership. This episode is part of the Positive Business Conference series, originally recorded at the University of Michigan Ross School of Business, where industry leaders gather to promote greater well-being and performance through connection with self others, and society for the greater global good. To learn more about PBC, visit www.positivebusinessconference.com. All righty then, let's get to it. My first guest today is Kim Cameron. Kim is the William Russell Kelly Professor of Management and Organizations in the Ross School of Business and Professor of Higher Education in the School of Education at the University of Michigan. He is a co-founder of the Center for Positive Organizations at the University of Michigan and has also served as a dean, associate dean, and department chair. I am so excited to speak with you because we had the great pleasure of kind of chatting to, about what brought us to the world of positive psychology and positive business. So welcome. Thanks. Thank you. Oh, my goodness. Thank you for the chance. Oh, well, it's my pleasure. You have also written a hundred and some odd scholarly articles in more than a dozen academic books, and you're considered one of the top scholars in the organizational sciences world and has been most frequently downloaded on Google. Did you know that about yourself? Well, you know, <laughs> if, you're, if you're hanging around a long, long time, somebody's bound to notice, hopefully... Well, I can fool some of the people some of the time. Well, you've got a lot of good stuff to say. You know, I think uh, for me, one of the most interesting parts of you is your evolution into this positive business world yes. that you had a, at, when you were a student. And, and you can talk a little bit about your education. You had some thoughts about virtuousness. Yes. Well, I got a Ph.D. like everybody else, assuming I was going to become a scholar. And at the time I got my Ph.D., nobody was talking about positive. That was just not a word that even entered our language. So my original research was on studying how do you determine if a college or a university is effective. I mean, is Harvard more effective than Yale or vice versa? Well, the normal answer is, well, do you live in Massachusetts or Connecticut? Over time, I got appointed to run a research center focusing on colleges and universities. And one of the key issues at the time was the cohort of uh, students available to enter college and universities, because the baby boomers had been through that demographic cycle, was very small. That is 400,000 fewer people available for college. So we studied decline, downsizing. How do you get smaller? How do you shrink an organization? 
most organizations deteriorate when that happens. So it became an interesting question for me, well, what happens to those organizations that we downsize when they deteriorate? Why is it that that occurs? On the other hand, there were 10 or 15%, small number, that got better. And it was kind of a surprise that some organizations flourished after having downsized, others didn't. That became a question for me. How do you explain that? And how do you explain that? <laughs> well, I didn't have data. And, I, you know, my uh, good PhD programs teach you that you better anchor your conclusions in data. I didn't have data, but I had a distinct impression that the difference between those that flourished and those that didn't was something I referred to as virtuous practices. Now, the trouble with that word virtuous is it's okay in philosophy, it's okay in religion, it's okay in areas where rigor and uh, hard empirical data are not required. But that's not in my field. Nevertheless, that's the concept that was uh, occurring in my head. Those organizations that got better were, in fact, compassionate and forgiving and high integrity. Uh, they, they represented kindness and positive meaning and so on. So I labeled those virtues. Well, I came back from that research center back to, I, I was hired back at Michigan and um, began studying business organizations as opposed to just higher education organizations. I was primarily studying organizations that were deteriorating or going downhill. But I decided, you know, I, I ought to find out if these findings apply to organizations outside of higher education. That is, if they're virtuous, do they flourish? Over time, the, the evidence became overwhelming that they do. Yeah. That is, organizations that implement virtuous practices become more profitable, more productive, higher quality, more innovation, better customer satisfaction. Let's define virtuous practices, please. <laughs> yes, well, it's a good question because there's an entire field of study called virtue ethics, and, and I'm not embedded in that philosophical world. But for me, virtuousness means that organizations are characterized by a variety of practices that we label virtuous practices. For example, there is, in fact, compassion at the organization level. That is, it's not just that I'm compassion when you're in pain, it rather is the organization as a unit tends to represent that philosophy. There tends to be forgiving mistakes or errors. Your career is not being sidetracked because you've flubbed up. Rather, we're going to use that as an opportunity to help you grow and help you get better and so on in the organization. And high integrity, high trust. And, you know, profound purpose and meaningfulness. That is, there's something more than just a paycheck that we're uh, oriented toward or that we're trying to pursue. So those things all combined. See, empirically, you cannot separate those out as a predictor. Just because I have high, whatever, high trust, does not mean that the organization's going to get better. But you combine a bunch of those practices together, virtues together, that then has impact on bottom line performance. So that's why I use the word virtuousness. That is, it's a combination of a whole lot of things 
And some people label grandmother's advice. You know, it's the stuff we ought to be doing in our lives. <laughs> grandmother's advice, <laughs> kindergarten, uh, <laughs> playground <laughs> advice. Right. You know, yeah. But, well, it, it does matter. I mean, two others come to mind. Kindness. Sure. Absolutely. Gratitude. Yep. You know. Those things are we measure. There are eight different dimensions that we measure. When scores go up on those measures, even in areas where you would never expect it. For example, one of the things we decided to do was to study organizations where the probability that they take this seriously would be low. Financial services is one of those industries. Military, national intelligence agencies, I mean, those kinds of organizations. So in financial services, for example, we took 40 organizations, expose them to positive practices, virtuousness, positive organization dynamics. We measured them at time one, that is at ground zero. We measured performance and their scores on these positive practices. Measure them again a year later, measure them again two years later. Mm -hmm. So now we have a chance to look at improvement in positive practices, as well as improvement in bottom line results. We could account for 45% of the variance in financial performance on the basis of whether or not people are getting better, or these organizations are getting better, versus not, or versus uh, having ignored it altogether. So even in, a, in financial services where there's one goal, show me the money, that is, I don't care about anything else, I, I've got to have a return. Even in those uh, situations, positive practices cause I shouldn't. I shouldn't be so unequivocal. Unequivocal about. <laughs> I agree with you, though. <laughs> over a two-year period of time, there's a major impact on financial performance of these virtuous practices. So even in places you'd not expect it, that's been the focus of my own research for the last 15 years or so. Is to try to answer the question: Does it matter in areas where uh, leaders are held accountable? I mean, if you're a CEO of a company or a chief operating officer or something, you've got goals and targets you have to achieve. You have no choice. Shareholder value has to be on your agenda. Customer satisfaction has to be on your agenda. Turns out, those outcomes, those indicators, all go up. And I would also expect that self-reporting, mm -hmm. that subjective well-being of the individual also rises as a result of these practices. Exactly. Exactly. In fact, the six outcomes that I normally measure are profitability goes up significantly, productivity goes up significantly, in whatever way organizations decide to measure that. Quality goes up significantly, fewer errors, less waste, fewer mistakes. Innovation, new product development, entrepreneurship goes up. Customer loyalty, customer satisfaction, customer retention goes up. And employee engagement, employee satisfaction, employee retention goes up. Now, those six factors you're held accountable for as a leader. And sure enough, bingo, we get results in those arenas. Now, there are certainly other outcomes that people pay attention to, but those seem to be, to me, relatively important. 
Yesterday, I uh, visited Menlo Innovations. Rich Sheridan is a friend of mine, and he's been on the show a couple of times and, and will be in the future more. And I had the opportunity to speak with some of the team members over there, sort of unsolicited, just quickly pulling them in to chat with them. And they all said the same thing in various ways, that the ability to work within a company that really values virtuosity yes. and it, where it's being led from the top has not only impacted the quality of their own work, but impacted their own lives and personal relationships. Invariably. Yeah. I mean, uh, we know, everybody knows it's almost a truism. Relationships, strong, high quality relationships have impact on bottom line performance. Yeah. One of the things that's emerged from our research that I think is interesting, at least it's sort of counterintuitive, is why is it, or at least what, is it, what are the major factors that cause relationships to have such impact? All right, the normal thing is, the normal uh, answer to that question is, when I am in a uh, positive relationship, I'm getting my needs met, I'm feeling valued, I feel good about myself, and so on. Turns out that's not the single most important factor in predicting why relationships matter. Here's the most important factor. And in fact, let me highlight two or three studies that, that give you the bottom line result. I'll give you the studies, then the bottom line result. Let's take a break. And when we yeah. come back, we'll continue the conversation with Kim Cameron to learn more about his work, his books, and him. Please visit michiganross.umich.com edu slash faculty. You can find him if you just go to Michigan Ross at the University of Michigan, Kim Cameron. And on Facebook, those pages are Positive Org and Michigan Ross. And on Instagram, I guess we're connecting with you at Michigan Ross. Here comes the break. We'll be right back. And that's a promise. Hang on just a minute before we take that pause. I want to introduce you to my new portable fiendish entertainment obsession. Best Fiends is a free downloadable app that is seriously good fun. It's a way to redirect that busy brain of yours from the obligatory to-do list to amusing interactive mind play that engages the old noggin in new ways to solve puzzles, collect characters, and compete with people you know and people you don't. For me, it's a little stress relief in the palm of my hand. I like to carve out a few minutes each day to focus my attention on this highly engaging digital universe that challenges me in a very good way. Best Fiends gives my brain a rest from regular workflow and transports me to another colorful realm that is a unique, exciting puzzle experience unlike any other out there in the digisphere. Right now, I'm on level 35 and climbing. My college kids are playing with me, which makes me feel connected to them, even though they are away from home. And here's the cool part. Best Fiends is great for travel. You can play anywhere and you do not need the internet to play. So why not join me in my happy, harmless obsession over at Best Fiends? Engage your brain with fun puzzles and collect tons of cute characters. Trust me, with over 100 million downloads, this five-star rated mobile puzzle game is a must-play. Download Best Fiends free on the Apple App Store or Google Play. That's friends without the R. Best Fiends. Now here comes the break. We'll be right back. To learn more about cultivating sustainable well-being at home and the office, visit HarvestingHappiness.com and explore Lisa's experiential on-site brain fitness workshops. 
corporate programming and speaking engagement services. Alrighty, we are back continuing my conversation with Kim Cameron. We're talking about management as a calling, yielding positive performance through positive leadership. This episode was originally recorded at the Positive Business Conference at the University of Michigan Ross School of Business, where industry leaders gather to promote greater well-being. To learn more about PBC, please visit www.positivebusinessconference.com. Let's return to that conversation with Kim Cameron. We're continuing our conversation about virtuosity in the workplace, in within organizations. And let's move on and talk about the spirit of virtuosity at the university, because it's palpable to me as an outsider coming into the university at every touch point that Great. that I've experienced here. Good. I hope so. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, yes. Talk a little bit about that. Well, when we started this research center called the Center for Positive Organizations, built on research, built on a theory, built on empirical work, not just happyology and, you know, being nice to each other. <laughs> one of the attributes, or one of the aspirations, rather, was to ex- expand or extend that influence beyond just this small little center. Turns out, at the time, the dean of the business school uh, resonated with all this, and as one of her four strategic pillars, adopted positive, making a positive difference in the world, as one of those strategic pillars. So it began to filter through the business school, and the staff, all the staff members, not a, I'm not sure every staff member, but most of the staff members have been through a day-long uh, training program or exposure to this. Uh, several, we have now a large number of faculty members who are affiliated with or core members of the, of the faculty in this center. So hopefully it becomes part of the culture, it becomes part of what we just do every day. If that occurs, then we will feel like we're a success. What's also interesting is the entire university's university has now begun buying in. Last week I spent time with, I don't know, 150 or so leaders of the business and finance group in the university. And they've adopted positive leadership as their core value, that they're, they have a three-year program. They're going to try to change entirely the administrative business finance part of the university to be embedded in positive. The athletic team, they spent some time with the basketball team, with the swimming team, with the softball team, who also have, you know, they're keeping gratitude journals. They're, uh, they're, this is, they're serious about this, saying we can win more games if this becomes part of what we do. I wholeheartedly agree. You know, you don't know, but I told you that um, when I was a graduate student a long time ago, I uh, spent time here with Chris Peterson, who is no longer with us, but is considered one of the grandfathers of positive psychology and an absolute gem of a man. And he really uh, drove home in the time that I spent with him that it's all about rolling up your sleeves and it's in the doing, 
Well, you I know? really believe that. Yeah, I really believe that, too. I mean, it has stuck with me all these years that if you don't roll up your sleeves and get into it, it's not about giving someone a handout or just giving money. It's really about making a difference sure. to live a life of impact. And it's not just motivational speaking. It's no. It's not just theology. It's no. not just feeling good about yourself. There really has mm-hmm. to be something done. And it's interesting that, that, that one of the things that was surprising to me that emerged out of research, it's not my research, but I became attracted to it, was a study done here where the, a friend in psychology took entering freshmen, asked them to identify their goals for the year. She categorized the goals into two types. One type was called achievement goals. I want to get good grades. I want a girlfriend. I want to be popular. The other kind of goal is called contribution goals. I want to make a difference. I want to have something better because of what I've done. Everybody has both goals, but she put people in two groups depending on which type of goal is dominant. Then the study was she simply followed these students for one year, measuring things like how well they get along with the roommates, how many times they got elected to a club office, social factors, how many minor physiological symptoms, how many times they got the flu in this class, physical factors what the grade point average was, what their test scores were, academic or cognitive factors. On every single dimension, contribution goals were far more predictive of performance than were achievement goals. It's what they contributed more than what they got. That's confirmed by a study. There are many of these. I'll just study, I'll just highlight one more. Multiple sclerosis patients were put in two groups One group was asked to receive a phone call, assigned to receive a phone call once a week, having someone express love, support, and concern. The other group was assigned to place a phone call to somebody else, expressing love, support, and concern to them. Two years later, they measured physical activity, well-being, self-efficacy, depression, and so on. Eight-fold difference. Those who placed the phone call were eight times healthier than those who received the phone call. And the combination of all these factors suggests to me it's the contribution you make more than just what you get. Yeah. So sort of underlying your point from Chris, relationships matter a lot in organizations. We want people engaged. We want people feeling good about themselves. But the best way to have that occur is action on their part contribution as opposed to receive. And most organizations, when you do well, give you stuff. I mean, giving, 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 and I'm going to make you feel good by giving you some kind of... uh, Prize. (laughs) Put your name in a paper, you know, something. Contributional matter. Have somebody who does well coach somebody else. Have them teach or mentor, you know, and so on. Those those kinds of things have emerged out of this research. Underlining what you just mentioned, you've got to do it. Is it the diminishment of ego that when we're in the act of serving, when we're being of use to someone else, we step out of our own way, we step out of our own worry, what will they think of me? You know, we're not as self-conscious and we're just in the flow of giving what we know away. I think it's really, I think it's a highlight. It's really a good insight on your part because there's some work done on humility Humility doesn't mean meekness, no. it doesn't mean weakness, it means I'm open to learning and I'm willing to acknowledge you and your achievements without feeling diminished myself. 
as it turns out, humility is a big predictor of success, and that's I think what you're describing. And it's one of the the vias, one of the yes. one of the, yes. the character strengths exactly. is humility. Yes. And the, let's talk about the celebration of the success of others, because um, there have been studies on that yeah. and elevation as a result of celebrating, you know, the good things that happen to those that we know. Do you know? Do you know a little bit about I know that? A little bit. Yeah. About it. And the reason that I know less than I should is because most of my time is spent trying to understand whether or not this affects organizations and their bottom line, rather than does it make you feel good. You know, positive psychology, for the most part, is focusing on motives, attitude, attribute. And it talks about positive institutions, but positive psychologists don't talk about positive institutions. No, but here we do. We do. That's it. (laughs) In fact, this whole field of positive organization scholarship was created about two years before I even knew that positive psychology existed, literally. We, we went over and met Marty Seligman over in University of Pennsylvania, had breakfast at his house, and that was the first time, two years later, that we all sort of got together, 2001, saying, you know what, we're using each other's work and we don't even know it. Yeah. So we've stayed on the organization side Primarily because folks are held accountable for leading those kinds of outcomes or producing those kinds of outcomes through their leadership. Let's talk a little bit about how this work translates to government. Yes. Because I think that that it is sorely needed in government today. It really is sorely needed. I'm going to give you two or three examples very briefly, and then I'll tell you a longer, a little bit longer story. We spend a little bit of time with U.S. Army generals, and the reason is you can't you can't kill enough people to make the world a safe no. good place. No, and they all say that. Exactly. You know, right. war is hell. It's mm-hmm. vile. They all say it. That's exactly. <laughs> National intelligence agencies, who by definition are trying to keep the bad guys from killing us all, and somebody is trying to do that every single day. Even in those circumstances, this stuff resonates a lot because it's a substitute for the things that just dominate us, that are leading us down. But here's a story that was especially interesting to me. I actually wrote a book about this. 16 miles west of Denver, Colorado, there's a place called the Rocky Flats Nuclear Arsenal. That's the place where they manufactured the triggers that went into the nuclear weapons that we were producing during the Cold War. Soviet Union had 70,000 nuclear weapons, we had 24,000, but that's enough to keep the world safe for democracy, and the balance of power was relatively even. Well, when the Cold War ended, the question is, well, what are we going to do with all this material? 21 tons of nuclear-grade material, plutonium, the half-life of plutonium is 26,000 years. I mean, we had enough plutonium to blow up the planet. 100 tons in residue form, dust and so on. 800 buildings, 3,500 people working there. The most dangerous, there was a Nightline special calling it the most dangerous place on the American continent. Well, now we've got to clean it up and close it. And the trouble is nobody in the history of the world has ever cleaned up and closed a nuclear arsenal. So the federal government brought together a Blue Ribbon Commission, experts from all over the world on nuclear energy, and essentially gave them the assignment Give us an estimate. How long is it going to take? What's it going to cost to clean up and close Rocky Flats nuclear arsenal? The estimate was 70 years, $36 billion. (laughs) Now, I interviewed the Secretary of Energy who said that was a gross underestimate. We assumed 200 years. 
and we assumed hundreds of billions of dollars, but Congress is not going to give us a blank check. And you can't send out an RFP for 200 years. Nobody will get on that. <laughs> All right, long story short, the federal government contracted with a company to do that job. They finished 60 years early, 30 billion under budget, 13 times cleaner than required by federal standards. I mean, and so on. It was so dramatic that people didn't believe it was true. Well, it's got to be a misestimate, except another dozen or so sites in, on the American continent got similar estimates, and they're on time on budget. It'll be another 75 years before the next one will close and be cleaned up. The whole point is, this organization knew about this topic. We'd spent three or so years with them on, with their top uh, leadership team, and they simply implemented practices that were known but counterintuitive and not often practiced. And I, it's probably the most successful change uh, story I know about. Dramatic improvement by saying, we're going we're to take this stuff, stuff seriously. So even in government, even when you say impossible can't be done, we're dealing with the Department of Energy, we're dealing with the EPA, we're dealing with you know, FBI and so on. Made it work. Well, it was the mission. That's right. The mission is what made it work. The people bought into the mission. That's right. That was certainly an important Right? That you're Absolutely. contributing to making the world a, a safer place. Right. It's now a wildlife refuge. Wow. It's the only wildlife refuge on the eastern slope of the Rockies. So you can hold Girl Scout camps and picnics out there. It's wonderful. That is wonderful. Yeah, that's great. Well, we need to we need to get it into the top brass of government. That's what that's where I, where I'm hoping this goes. You know that through the work that you are doing here, through people spreading the good word of positive business, that we can take it to all levels of our government and beyond, and perhaps have a more peaceful approach to the way we conduct our lives. Wouldn't you know, that be great. yeah. If the world it's doable, it's it, doable. It's it should be doable. Yes. If the world was virtuous, there'd be no poverty. There'd be no war. Everybody'd be well educated, fed, along. fed, fed ha- housed. That's right, exactly. Educated. Yep. Yeah. Well, that, well, we have a we have a mission to work towards. Yes, we do. <laughs> and you are making a big difference. You're well, getting a lot more. You're making much more difference than I am, and that we are. Thanks for, uh, thanks for doing this. Oh, thank you. Well, my, my job is to get to get what you're doing out to the world, yes. right? It's, yes. it's, it's being a messenger. I want to just also give a little plug for your books because there are many that you have written. Practicing Positive Leadership, Tools and Techniques that Create Extraordinary Results, Competing Values Leadership, Organizational Effectiveness, A Comparison of Multiple Models, The Oxford Handbook of Positive Organizational Scholarship, Positive Leadership, Strategies for Extraordinary Performance, and on and on and on. I am honored to have you in here with me today. This has been wonderful. To learn more about Kim Cameron and his work, please go to Michigan Ross at the University of Michigan. I won't give the long website. You can Google him there. And on Facebook, those pages are Positive Org and Michigan Ross. And on Instagram, the team will be communicating at Michigan Ross. Thank you, Kim, so Thank much. You, oh my gosh. What I a pleasure. <laughs> Thank you. We're going to take that pause and then we'll return to talk more about management as a calling, yielding positive performance through positive leadership. We'll be right back. Did you know that happiness is actually good for your health? Happy people live longer. 
are more productive and make better partners, parents, and professionals. Connect with us on Facebook at Harvesting Happiness and follow Lisa on Twitter at Lisa Kamen for a daily dose of inspiration. Welcome back. We're continuing our conversation that was originally recorded at the University of Michigan Ross School of Business, the Positive Business Conference, where industry leaders gather to promote greater well-being and performance through connection with self, others, and society for the greater global good. My next guest is Andy Hoffman. He is the Wholesome Professor of Sustainable Enterprise at the University of Michigan, a position that holds joint appointments in the Stephen M. Ross School of Business and the School for Environment and Sustainability. We're talking about his talk, The Next Phase of Business Sustainabilities, Management as a Calling. Welcome. Thank you. It's nice to be here. Oh, it's great to have you. Um, you have written an article entitled The Next Phase of Business Sustainability. Talk about what this next phase looks like. Mm-hmm. Sure. Well, Business sustainability has been around since the mid-1990s, and it's really focused on integrating, um, thinking of sustainability as a market shift. So you develop an electric car or a sustainable food. You develop a product with the market as exists, and we're making great strides. Tesla is doing great. Electric cars are the future. Green, we're sitting in a green building right now. You can stay in a sustainable hotel. Um, all that's good. The rub is the problem is getting worse. Um, the issues like climate change. We are altering the system, the ecological system, and that's not the only marker. Um, We're acidifying the ocean. You just saw the UN report earlier this week that uh, the the rate of extinction of species is at an alarming pace such that as many as 50% of today's species will be gone by 2100. I can go through a whole litany of problems that are at a different scale and of a different type than the kind of problems we're facing. State a few more problems, because I want people yeah. to understand, listeners who are tuning in here, how grave the problem really is and how being in solution and educating students and leaders to move into, the, into business in a sustainable fashion is so important and vital. Right. Well, physical scientists have made a proposition, a formal proposition, that we've entered a new geological epoch that we're no longer in the Holocene, we're in the Anthropocene. And that is arguing or pointing out that you cannot describe the environment without including the role of human beings. We are now in charge of some of the operating systems on Earth. And they describe nine planetary boundaries. These are boundaries beyond which we should not go if we want to maintain a safe environment for humans and other life forms. And we're crossing three of them. And, and those boundaries are? Well, the three that we're crossing are climate change. We're altering the global climate. Uh, species extinction. They're calling it the fifth grade extinction. We are causing it. Mm. Uh, and then the third, interestingly, is nitrogen. Humans produce more nitrogen than natural processes. We put it on farms. It runs off into rivers. Uh, ends up in our lakes. It causes algae blooms. Uh, the mouth of the Mississippi River right now is a huge dead zone. Nothing can live there because of all the fertilizer, the nitrogen that runs off. Some of the others, there's only one that's in decline. And that's ozone depletion. We've reduced the, the extent of ozone depletion, but others include water scarcity. Uh, the availability of fresh water is starting to become perilously dangerous yes. in parts of the world. Phosphorus runoff, ocean acidification, and blanking on the others. But the basic gist is that these are of a fundamentally different type uh, of environmental problem than what we've faced in the past. And 
To give you a, a more visceral example, I was talking to a research chemist at Pfizer a number of years ago, and he very matter-of-factly said in the conversation, you know, there are measurable levels of ibuprofen in the Mediterranean Sea. What? Uh, yeah, and I was quite impressed by the comment, but also he was quite casual about it. Wow. He, he went on to say, that does not concern us. Ibuprofen is a relatively benign compound. What really concerns us are birth control pills and antidepressants. You take a drug, sometimes your body doesn't even process it, it passes right on through. Its mere presence does its job. Or if your body uses it, maybe 10 to 15%. It enters the treatment system. The treatment system can't handle it. It goes into the aquatic ecosystem untreated, and it changes the flora and the fauna. And there are all kinds of birth defects that are starting to happen in animals around sewage outflows. But more importantly, it gets into the broader ecosystem and enters a system that we care about. That's called food. Mm -hmm. And two years ago, scientists were studying salmon in uh, Puget Sound, and they found Prozac. And they found 40 prescription drugs. They even found cocaine in the salmon. And that's the salmon that ends up on your dinner plate. And so that is the Anthropocene. We are changing the world around us at an alarming rate and in alarming ways that are, are, are genuinely quite scary. And in the work that you do here at the university, how do you get people to become interested in, in this as their profession, as their avocation? Well, let's begin with the, the simple premise that the market caused these problems. Yeah. Uh, some have even suggested it shouldn't be called the Anthropocene, it should be called the Capitalocene. Capitalism did it. <laughs> now, some people, Naomi Klein and others, would say, well, we have to tear down capitalism and come up with something new. But that really is not a realistic option before us. So the only option, the only pragmatic option we have before us, if capitalism solved it or caused it, we can only solve it through, through capitalism. capitalism, but changing capitalism. Conscious capitalism. Well, that's one metaphor, but there's many different ideas coming out now. There's a lot of different, there's a confusing array of ideas on what is the next evolution and capitalism to deal with these issues. But at the bottom line, we need more managers who recognize the tremendous power and influence they have as business managers to do good or to do ill. And if we don't produce more business students and business managers with a sense of irresponsibility to society, to serve society, make society better, then we're doomed. We're just going to create people that just want to make their wallet fat. And we'll have more Enrons and Worldcoms and Volkswagen cheating scandals because they're just focusing on making money. But if we focus on generating people that actually want to use business to make the world a better place, uh, it's not just Pollyannish. It's, it's actually a pragmatic necessity. And it's happening. 20 years ago, when students wanted to change the world, they would go into schools of government or nonprofit management. Today, in larger, larger numbers, they're going into schools of business because they see the power of business to really influence the world in positive ways. And that, that gives me hope. It gives me hope as well. But what kind of student do you look for? What kind of person would find this attractive? Well, interestingly, I find that students really across the board find the idea of a calling or vocation extremely compelling, extremely interesting. Because let's face it, young people today look at work as an expression of who they are. Yeah. And more and more are going into business and wanting to assert that that expression. A lot of people fault the millennials as sort of being self-entitled that they want to express themselves through work. But what's the alternative? The alternative message is go to school so you can have a career, make money, and that's what life is all about. And that's an awful message. And so the idea that you can actually leave the world better than you found it 
is something that I think young people resonate with very strongly, and older people too. The idea of a vocation of calling is not restricted just to young people. I, I had a colleague who studied people who found their vocation in retirement. They suddenly discovered that thing that really got them excited, got them passionate to, to really focus. Because let's face it, if we're just doing it to make money, when the headwinds get strong, you'll quit. But if you really connect it to who you are, like for example, you know, I focus on issues around climate change. It's a very contentious debate. And if I didn't really see the sense of purpose around addressing this issue, I would have quit. Just this week, there was a UN meeting on the Arctic. A treaty was blocked by the U.S. government because they didn't want any mention of the words climate change. And Mike Pompeo actually gave a speech, and in it he said, the opening of the Northwest Passage, for the first time in human history, is a good thing because it can increase trade. If I was just doing this for money, I'd, I'd cash it in and start partying like it's 1999. <laughs> but because I really feel a strong sense of who I am, a strong sense of purpose, even when things get hard, I keep pressing forward. So somebody that would come into uh, management for sustainability w would be guided by a moral compass. Yep. Ideally, somebody who really felt strongly about who, who they are and the legacy they want to leave for their children or their children's children? You would hope so, but it doesn't have to be that way. Um, someone could start Tesla seeing in a market opportunity in electric cars, and they'll move forward in that direction. I don't know Elon Musk. I don't know what motivates him or makes him do it. But I think that we have something here at, the, uh, at Ross called the Herb Institute, and students go for three years, and they get two degrees. They get an MBA, and they also get a Master of Science from the School of Environment and Sustainability. They merge the two together. That is cool. And now these students really have a, a strong sense of calling and purpose, and employers are very attracted to this because these people work their tails off. They work really hard because you can motivate people with a buck, but if you're connected to who they are, just get out of their way. They will. They will move forward. Now, it's hard. It's a hard road to hoe because you're pushing against the status quo. You're, you know, you're walking a different path, and, and, and you will have people who will push back. I mean, anytime you're challenging people on how they think or behave, you will encounter resistance, and that's what this is all about. But if we don't do this, we're really in serious trouble. We're doomed. Yeah. But I, I, I have hope in this generation, and I hope have hope the market is is starting to shift. The CEO of BlackRock, Larry Fink, issued a letter last year to the CEOs of the companies that they have a stake in, which is just they're huge, saying you really need to rethink the purpose of your company. If you're not serving society, we really will reexamine whether you have a long term future. Well, I think you hit on something really important about companies serving society, that it's not so much about making the widget, but is the widget that you are making serving something that is helpful to the greater good? And importantly, are the byproducts of the widget, are they causing damage, are yes. they causing harm? You know, in the last talk, uh, the speaker brought up um, agency theory and Milton Friedman and the notion that the purpose of the corporation is to serve shareholders. That's not the only model out there. You know, Peter Drucker tried to offer a counter-narrative saying that the purpose of the corporation is to find and serve a market. And profits is just one metric on how well they do that. I think that if we teach people that the purpose of the corporation is to make sure money for the shareholder, you can have all kinds of aberrant behavior, very, very short-term thinking. Mm -hmm. I'm going to make money for me now, and I don't care about the collateral damage. And that is a, a cause of a lot of problems we have today. 
We're going to take a break. And when we come back, we're going to resume the conversation with Andy Hoffman to learn more about his work. He's written an article, The Next Phase of Business Sustainability. You can connect with him at andrewhoffman.net, on Twitter at HoffmanAndy. Here comes the break. We'll be right back. And that is a guarantee. Who says money can't buy happiness? Whether you are a skeptic or seeker, check out Lisa's new book, Are We Happy Yet? Eight Keys to Unlocking a Joyful Life. A boot camp manual for greater emotional fitness is available at Barnes & Noble, Amazon, IndieBound, and HarvestingHappiness.com. Here's a truth bomb. Emotions are contagious, and happiness is a universally desired state. But we tend to forget that we all have the freedom to be happy or the liberty to be miserable each day, regardless of external circumstances. Explore the journey of human happiness, how to find it and keep it, with Lisa's documentary film, H-Factor. Where is your heart? Visit HarvestingHappiness.com to learn more. Welcome back to the show. We're talking about management as a calling. Let's return to my conversation with Andy Hoffman that was originally recorded at the Positive Business Conference at the University of Michigan Ross School of Business. To learn more about PBC, please visit PositiveBusinessConference.com. So Andy, prior to the break in the last segment, we were talking about the work that you do at University of Michigan, getting students interested in taking on sustainability, business sustainability as a calling at the management level. So talk a little bit more about the new frontier of enterprises that someone might look at if they were to enter the management marketplace today. You talked about the electric car, but talk about some others. Well, we teach the idea of business sustainability in, in two areas. And the first one we call enterprise integration. And this has been around since the mid-1990s. And this is really accepting the market as it is, uh, the pressures as they are, and look at sustainability as a market shift. So what is the next drivetrain of the automobile? That's a market shift in play, and companies need to adapt. Renewable energy is another. These are market shifts in play. There are a whole host of areas, whether it's organic food or building products, sustainable buildings. This is taking the market as it is and just framing sustainability as operational efficiency, cost of capital, consumer demand. Put it in the language of business. The next phase is really around challenging and changing the system. It's really thinking of what we call market transformation. So not taking the rules of the market as they are, but looking how corporations can start to shift them and push them. And, and that really recognizes that, for example, capitalism is not static and it's not monolithic. Scandinavian capitalism is different than American capitalism, different than Japanese capitalism, and it's constantly evolving. And the rules of the game are constantly changing. And importantly, they're changed in policy. They're changed in government. Government has a role in the market. I'm disturbed by how many people think that the government doesn't have a role in the market. And that that is just, that's not, that's not feasible. That's not, it's just not the way it works. In all markets, not just the U.S. market. Yeah, in all yeah. markets. But there are different models of the role of government. And we have a particular model here that really tries to push government out of the way. But, you know, you can all go all the way back to Adam Smith. He firmly believed in the role of government to curb the excesses of the market, to guide it when necessary. 
And so in this idea of market transformation, companies are stepping in to try and change the system around them. So a, a nice way to illustrate the difference between enterprise integration and market transformation. In enterprise integration, you reduce your carbon emissions to deal with climate change. In market transformation, you go carbon neutral. And that really is where we have to go. You can reduce your carbon emissions. You're not solving a problem. We're reducing the velocity at which we're running to a brick wall, but we're not changing direction. Mm. So how do you go carbon neutral? That requires a completely different approach of thinking about changing the system. So a utility putting in some wind farms saying we're sustainable, that actually makes no sense. You have to think about sustainability through the entire energy infrastructure, from generation through transmission, distribution, use, and mobility. If you can make that sustainable... Now you're talking, and that's a system. And so companies are trying to change and become carbon neutral. Toyota's pledged to be carbon neutral by 2050. They cannot do that by themselves, and they cannot do that just by changing the drivetrain. They have to involve a whole host of stakeholders and, and start to think out of the box. And so last year, there's a company called WeWork. It's an office interiors company, and they pledged to go carbon neutral. And they recognize that one of the biggest elements of their carbon footprint is, you can ask your listeners, it's uh, eating meat. Meat eating is a tremendous contributor to your carbon footprint. So what do they do? If you submit an expense report at WeWork and it has meat, they will not pay for it. That's part of their way of trying to cut carbon emissions. How interesting. That's out-of-the-box thinking. It's that provocative. Is. It is provocative. I agree that they're doing it, but... That's the kind of thinking we have to use to start to move forward to address this, this challenge of, of climate change. We have to change the system. We have to change the market. Well, going back to what you're saying about eating meat. Now, I did not know that. I've learned something that I think is incredibly valuable. Why are we not teaching this in school, in elementary school or junior high? I can only hazard a guess of the, the politics of it, the awareness of it. It's provocative territory. We're talking about moneyed interests here in the, in the meat industry, but... If you saw yesterday, there's a company that's come out called Beyond Meat, and the scientists have developed a way to make a plant-based meat. They make heme from meat. Heme is what makes meat look and taste like meat. It's red, and it, uh-huh. and it has the texture. They just did an IPO yesterday, and it, it shot. It took off. I mean, there is a huge market for this product. And if I served you a hamburger from Beyond Meat, I wouldn't know. you'd have a tough time telling that it wasn't meat unless I told you it wasn't meat. And this is a direction in terms of alternative proteins. Um, Tyson Foods is getting interested in this. Some big players are starting to get into it. It's not just plant-based meat, but if you're ready for the next step, uh, one source of alternative protein is insects. And there are cricket farms. I have heard of this. It's not just eating a cricket, but you can actually grind it into a powder, and it can serve as a source of protein with an, um, an extremely low impact on the environment compared to uh, meat production. But educating people on their impact on the environment, that, that's hard work because you, you're, you're asking people to add one more layer on the complexity of how we get through our day. It's, it's very hard to be thoughtful about every consumer decision. But it's not telling people not to eat meat. It's saying, you know, this is, this is what eating meat does to yeah. the planet. And then you make your decision once you have the education. <clears throat> well, we could even go further. And what does it do to your health? Um, well, the health. I mean, I do eat meat at this point in my life. Yeah. I've been through cycles where I've been completely vegan. Yeah. But now that I hear this, it's like, I might make another decision. But I, you know, I don't want your listeners to come across as saying I'm, I'm advocating the end of meat. or No, a, that's a, not what I'm hearing. Vegetarianism, but it is starting to be thoughtful yes. and be aware. Um, the clothes you're wearing, how are they made? How did they get to your yes. closet? 
Um, you can just go for the cheapest stuff that's out there. But was someone hurt in the process where people paid fairly? Income inequality is a tremendous issue in our economy right now that, again, has to be solved by the market. I mean, policy will come in, but it's a very blunt instrument. And, and, and companies are stepping forward and saying, we're, we're going to start to pay a higher minimum wage just in terms of equity and fairness if their employees are in food stamps. That's not a very good workforce. Well, it speaks to Maslow's hierarchy of needs, right? If you don't have your basic needs mm-hmm. met, it's impossible for you to have self-actualization and be a good, a good co-worker or team player. Yeah. Yeah. So re- recognizing that, I think, is, is huge. Sure. And it's just also think about different kinds of models for organizing. Right now, in business schools, the primary model we'll teach is just the shareholder model. You go on to get money, you do an IPO, you go to Wall Street, you set it up like a corporation with the CEO on top and the layers down below. But... What about uh, uh, community-owned, a co-op? What about employee-owned, ESOP? Uh, There's a thing called benefit corporations where you uh, make a a legal statement that you will focus on environmental and social criteria as well as economic. Or here in Ann Arbor, we have something called Argus Farms. They're actually something called a low-profit LLC. Now, that I'm looking at your face. Yeah. yeah. That's delight. (laughs) These are different ways of organizing within a market system. And so these people set up Argus Farms to try and correct the problem that the family farmer is getting killed. Yeah. Because if you go to the average grocery store, that family farmer may get five cents on the dollar. But Argus Farms tries to give them 95 cents on the dollar by taking out the middlemen and taking out the people that are really capitalizing on the profits because let's face it farmers are price takers they have no choice if the if if the company comes along and says we're giving you this per you know unit of of, of wheat they can't say no i'm going to go someplace else they have to take right it. um and so the the food chain is really dominated by the big aggregators whether it's the grocery stores or or the cargills or the adm so how do we give more power back to the local farmer. That's what Argus Farms is trying to do, using the power of the market. We need to teach students of business more alternative models yeah. of setting up a business. I, I have not heard of this, and I'm enchanted by it. I mean, it's, it's delight saying, all right, this is, this is looking out for the greater good, and then how does it scale up? How does it move across the country? And it also gets back to going to business because you want to love what you're doing. Yeah. I mean, let's face it, anyone who's opening up an independent bookstore today they're doing it because they love, they love it. This is a really tough business, but they love it. And when you produce people that can, I'm mystified by students that come out of an MBA program and say, I may go into the hospital or the auto sector, or I may go into oil, or I may go into consulting. Can anyone really be that amorphous, ambiguous, aimless? What if I, you know, I love cars. I want to go work for the auto sector. I really want to, I want to work on cars, right? I really love food. I want to get into the food sector. I really love healthcare. That word love, how do we bring that big in to the idea of management? This was a conversation I just had in, in my interview prior about bringing love into the workplace because it's kind of like sacrilegious, oh, the word love in the workplace. But, but, it, but it's love on sort of a big scale. When someone says, I love my work, yeah. this, is, this is what it's all about. And if you don't love your work, you know, I know people that are counting days to retirement in their 40s. That's a hell of a way to live. Not happy. Not happy. Not happy. And they won't be the best employees. But leave out the pragmatic. You as an individual, what kind of a life do you want to have? And if you've chosen management as your career, 
How do you want to make it the most interesting, the most exciting, a place where you'll thrive? Yeah. And solving the great challenges of our day. There's a, a writer, um, a Thomas Berry, and he has a book called The Great Work. And the, the main gist of it is every generation is saddled with the great work of their day. If we were sitting here in 1942 and I had teaching students had visions of being titans on Wall Street, too bad. The great work of your day is called World War II. And he says the nobility of your generation will be defined by how you respond to that great work. To my mind, the great work of today is around sustainability, environmental and social, around climate change and its related issues, and also around income inequality and its related issues, because that is tremendously destabilizing. It is quite quite dangerous, actually, the level of inequality in this country and in the world. And throw in some passion and purpose with this. Absolutely. It's all about purpose. Yeah. It's all about purpose. Thank you. This has been wonderful. To learn more about the work of Andy Hoffman, please go to his website, andrewhoffman.net. On Twitter, you can find him at Hoffman Andy. And the paper that we were discussing, as well as the presentation, was the next phase of business sustainability management as a calling. Thank you. You educated and enlightened me, and I'm, I'm very appreciative. Well, thank you, Lisa. It's been Thanks. A pleasure. Thank you. I hope you enjoyed today's show, which is part of a series that was originally recorded at the Positive Business Conference at the University of Michigan Ross School of Business, where industry leaders gather to promote greater well-being and performance through connection with self, others, and society for the greater good. To learn more about PBC, please visit PositiveBusinessConference.com. Thanks for joining us on today's show. This is Lisa Cypress-Gaiman and my fantastic guests, Kim Cameron and Andy Hoffman, wishing you kind thoughts, kinder words, and the kindest of actions. Until next time, remember, happiness is an inside job. Happiness is your inside job. Go out and rock your day. Keep harvesting your own happiness anytime and anywhere from the comfort of wherever you are. Subscribe, listen, and share hundreds of downloadable episodes via our free app or from our libraries at toginet.com, iTunes, Google Play, and other fine podcast platforms. To learn more about Lisa's global consulting services, please visit harvestinghappiness.com. Spread more joy by liking us on Facebook at Harvesting Happiness and following Lisa on Twitter at Lisa Kamen. Harvesting Happiness is produced in collaboration with TogiNet Radio, KBUU-RadioMalibu.net, and is available on PRX, the public radio exchange.